Okay, so <laughs> welcome this evening to the Topco Business Unusual podcast. And it's pretty unusual because we've got a, a comedian, very famous comedian at that, Nick Rabinovitz from Cape Town, joining us. It's late at night, your happy hour. How are you going? This is, yeah, this is definitely my happy hour. My kids are in their beds, um, heavily sedated. <laughs> and uh, I'm free. I'm free, Ralph. You wanted to do this at like half past two in the afternoon. For sure. But I'm also an evening person. Are you? Well, I'm forced to be at the moment. So I normally, during lockdown, only get to my desk at 8 p.m. Sure. Waking up? Waking up? Uh, what time do I wake up? Yeah. Uh, normally, well, depends what time somebody wakes me up. It's normally between 2 and 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, I'll go back to sleep in, normally in that person's bed. So they will be in our bed and then I'll go to their bed. And then sometimes I'll wake up, think I'm in their bed, go back to my bed, only to discover I was in my bed to begin with. When, when my children were young, my brother stayed with us. And many times, my wife snores a bit. Don't tell her that, but she no. does. And so um, my brother, next to his bed, he would often wear earplugs when he was sleeping. And so the one night I woke up and I moved to his bed, I, I actually stole his earplugs out of his ears and put them in mine so I could sleep. <laughs> so I feel your pain. But that was no, a long actually, time ago. It's actually not, you know, at the time, it's actually not that painful. You kind of kind of develop this resilience towards it. And I suppose resilience is kind of a theme for many people in dealing with this lockdown. I think that's why I think it was so great to have you on the show because business unusual i think that that there's a lot of people who are very fearful that that sort of fight or flight scenario has really come out people it's the unknown when it's going to finish how's it going to affect me people losing their jobs their businesses it's it's almost at this time where you actually need humor and comedy to get us through but i don't know how relevant it is right now yeah well i wasn't sure at the beginning you know obviously all of my uh Work dried up immediately, all, all of the live shows and gigs and corporates and, and all of that. So I was, I think I was pretty fearful for a couple of days and told my wife, uh, listen, you're now the main breadwinner and you better see as many patients as you can. And, uh, you know, and she, she got a bit freaked out as well. But um, I didn't anticipate the degree to which the online space would just open up in the way that it has for doing live comedy, whether it's live shows. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have been doing this for 19 years and have developed a very you know, strong platform, but it did take kind of diving in the deep end pretty, mm. pretty quickly into a, a number of different things that I would never have imagined myself doing just a week or two before. And I think I can resonate with that. You know, as a media company, we had to completely do the, more or less the same thing. And I mean, some people, like I watch those MMA fights and they're done in those 
with no crowd around them. And I, yeah. and, and I think, do they perform differently? And then, but then I watch you early in the morning with your hair making coffee and, and I'm thinking to myself, you make me laugh just as much as you did when I'm in front of you. So is it hard to, to gauge how funny you are? You know, the interesting thing was, so what you're describing is a breakfast show I did on, on Instagram Live. Um, and that's actually quite easy because you kind of just get up and you've got bad hair and it doesn't matter too much to me. In fact, I kind of find it appealing to just, you know, just just be and let things be and it is what it is. And you see my three-year-old having a tantrum or or, or having just wet the bed or whatever it was. I found that the live shows, you know, on a webinar kind of platform where you can't see anybody or hear anybody and you're just talking for, I think I did an 18-minute show, um, but I didn't have my wife in the room for the first one, which was great, but then the second one, she'd heard the material a lot, so she, she didn't, there were, there were no laughs, there was literally nothing from her. <laughs> Or the audience, and, and so you, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah, well, you see people's comments, but then you don't know, like, you know, when people someone sends you one of those crying, laughing emojis, they're generally not la laughing or crying, so it's very hard to tell. Uh, and then only afterwards, you people send videos and whatever, and you see, oh, it was actually funny. So I found those quite difficult to get used to. Then there's the kind of uh, in the beginning, the Zoom call was obviously a little bit uh, novel, and uh, I can see people. So that's kind of useful. You can see people, but then mm. you can also see them go to sleep. Like we had some really old people on the first show, and they were literally falling asleep in front of the screen. And then, <laughs> um, and what I've started to do is unmute people. If the size of the group is small enough, it's quite nice to hear laughter. You know, we got used to no laughter, and then the sound of laughter is is like music. It's it's uh, it's manna from heaven. So I've started doing a little bit of that, and and kind of being forced to interact way more than I would normally, which is actually quite fun. So I've been uh, with my corporate shows, getting a lot of sort of inside information, so then I can talk to people and and get them to unmute themselves, and and, and I'm finding people want to. Connect. That's the main thing. People want to feel connected. They're in isolation. They want to feel connected to other human beings. They want a real experience. They want to see what's behind. You know, I started using Zoom backgrounds in the beginning, and then I realized people actually want to see what's behind you on the shelf or see the screwed up plug on the wall or whatever it is. They want to see the cracks. And I think that's a good why, metaphor why is that? also for this time. Well, I think... I, th I, th I think somehow authenticity or at least being authentic about having been inauthentic, which is actually the path to authenticity to begin with, is it's kind of life breathing. It's, it breathes life into us because pretending is actually what takes energy. And right now we don't have energy for much. We don't have a lot of energy for pretending. If people ask you how you are these days, you probably likely to get an accurate response, which is very unusual. For sure. um, so I'm quite excited by this whole um, trend, this whole movement towards realness. 
comedians are often known as, as fearless. So it's interesting that um, different people are going to unknown territory. Yes. But I remember I went to the comedy festival once and it was my birthday and I made the mistake of wearing a red shirt and my wife made the mistake of putting us right at the front. Hmm. And a Scotsman decided to undress and rub his naked body all over me. That sounds, that sounds interesting. It was for everybody else apart from me. Yeah. So, so I often think where is, where is comedy going with, with, um, with COVID and tech and digitization? All my kids are on TikTok. Have you been on there? Well, funnily enough, I just, uh, before this call, I got on another call with a TikTok celebrity uh, to teach us a TikTok dance for a Zoom call. And um, so I've, I have a, now I have a TikTok account, but I haven't yet posted anything. Okay. Because I'm 43 and I haven't sort of, and I have three kids and I haven't spent the time. <laughs> God, what the hell to put on there? <laughs> Yeah, so like I was saying, I, I watched um, a podcast of Tony Robbins and he he's quite an investor in tech and he's all very interested in it. And um, so he, he'd acquired this AI, machine learning tool, technology, and, and for the last sort of 30 years of his performances, he's put the, he, you know those performances in this AI and machine learning. And essentially what he's done is he's able to deliver um, – you know, his advice or his input to anyone and it's relevant to them based on what he would say in any situation. So, I mean, is that something that you, you think could happen with something like comedy? You know, it obviously happened with, um, inspirational yeah. speakers. I think it'd be great if it did, we could, we could maybe retire. Um, <laughs> I can't, you know, one thing about, Comedy is that it kind of has to be somewhat relevant to the times. Um, so I'm not sure I could do my material from 30 years ago. Also, I was 13 and I didn't have any material. <laughs> uh, whereas I think, I, I mean, I, I don't know, but it's an interesting idea. Somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, of course, um, because the material is not linked to current that much to current things. It's more observational. Um, it'd be very interesting to see how that could work. Uh, well, the other piece of tech that I like of Tony Robbins is, is the hologram. So you can actually go and um, you, you can actually go off and, and perform in wherever and not have to leave the house. That's that would be quite valuable right now. I've seen him do a few things like that. Have you have you seen that? I haven't, but I've, you know, obviously we've looked at stuff like that. And and how did it how did it go? I mean, I think that the the challenge is the cost of the equipment at the event for yeah. the hologram, right? That's the so you're saving on airfares, but then you got the. I mean, Tony definitely needs to invest in something like that. I did a program with him last year, and uh, and I think it seemed like his his I don't know how he, his voice has survived this long, but he, it seems like he's physically not able to actually uh, generate the kind of energy and uh, force with which he delivers those programs. So 
I guess, I guess um, he needs to find solutions to that. I mean, that's the other thing with comedians is you, is you kind of, yeah, as you get older and older, do you want to do certain things that you used to do? Maybe I'll just send the hologram. Hologram. Is that is that <laughs> the thing? That could be the thing. And how was Tony? Was it good to be with him, or was it more hype than real? There was a lot of hype, uh, but it was also just you know quite extraordinary to watch him. He's he's just a phenomenon. He's a kind of force of nature, and to do it with ten thousand people was you know. Quite an unforgettable experience. I think things like that that do have a sort of motivational stuff like that tends to wear off after you know three four months. Mm. But it's certainly something I don't regret having done. Yeah, and I mean, is there other people like that that you've enjoyed working with or stand out? Um, in terms of personal development transformation stuff. Well, yes, yeah, speakers that you've done. Oh, speaking. Well, that was I was. You've met. I was a participant. I was a participant in his program. I wasn't kind of involved in any way. Um, but obviously, I've worked in South Africa with quite a lot of interesting motivational speakers and speakers of you know different kinds of speakers. But he, yeah, I mean, there's not many people that compare to to him. For sure. So. I mean, have you got some shows organized for post-lockdown? Are you gathering some great material? or uh, The material, of course, is, is being gathered and it's, you, you, there's so much um, to gather on a daily basis. But I kind of got notebooks and the this, this stuff's accumulating. I did a series of diaries from my toilet. Um, <laughs> Which, which is where I was self-isolating from my kids for a while. <laughs> and that helped me generate a lot of content. Um, you kind of have to be forced into doing something like that. Otherwise, it's just kind of surviving and parenting and doing all these other things. Um, so that was, was really great. And it's difficult to, to schedule anything in terms of a theater show right now. I'm due to – I had dates booked for June – but those obviously I don't think will happen. It's hard to know if we'll even do live shows before the end of the year in terms of what's you know what's a legal sized gathering or a safe gathering of of people. But the online shows I've done two and there's a demand for them, so I guess I'll I don't want to run out of material, but I will keep doing those on a fairly regular basis. Well, I thought they were really cool. The stuff that we saw. So that was really cool. But I, I think the same with you. Like we get asked, are we going to do events again? And so at the moment, my thinking is just in the now, right? Just working yeah. on what we're working with. Um, so I know many media companies that started off digitally and then they sort of went more physical as time went on, if it made sense. So... Yes. And, and I mean, I often think about comedy. I mean... I, I went to the um, comedy and business. It, it's quite an unusual sort of relationship, really, this comedy and business. I went to the What Car Awards in the UK, and yes. it must have been about 10 years ago now. And Jack Black was the MC for the night. And 
and I'd never seen, we've done awards for over 20 years in South Africa, but what he did is he absolutely ripped into every single car manufacturer of any shortcoming that it had. And I think Peugeot took the, the biggest slice of that evening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I remember talking to my colleagues and saying, could we do something like that in South Africa? Could we take the, the piss out of our sponsors in a nice, light-hearted way? And the, the sort of feeling was no. But then, I mean, for the last two years, we've worked with you on the future of HR. Yes. How do you feel about working with corporates and comedy? Do you get muddled? I, I I really enjoy I really enjoy it if I if I have the freedom to kind of you know not do it in a nasty way, but to be able to lightly roast whoever I choose to in an audience. And there are some clients that are quite conservative and sensitive to that. What happens, I've noticed, in the now in an online space is that they're even more sensitive. More? Uh, well, maybe that's just the one that I worked with earlier yeah. last month. Uh, but because in a live setup, I don't often have to run anything by anybody. I kind of just, I'm going on intuitively what I know will work and where the boundaries are. Yeah. Um, and then I can get away with it because people are generally laughing and even people who don't get the jokes or don't find them funny will look around at the other people laughing and go, well, it must be funny because everyone else is finding it funny. What happens in an online world is where people want to review the material before and, and, and then get sensitive about it is that, uh, well, in this case, they canned the whole event. No. Yeah. It was a car manufacturer as well. <laughs> I don't want to mention any names. BMW. Anyway. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. And, I mean, it gets me probably to the, to the next point, which is I, I, I get this sense that comedy is a reflection of our appetite for freedom as a society. And I mean, are you feeling that you have the ability to say what's on your mind at all times? Do you feel that we have freedom of speech at the moment? Yeah, I, I do feel that. I I don't necessarily choose to do that. Mm, I don't feel the need to have to. I would, you know, I like to kind of work on my stuff and develop it and feel like. Um, the material is strong before I'm just throwing something out on social media um, because I think I think people are in a very reactive state and that's just pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. um, people are easily triggered and reactivated by a lot of different things and now it's obviously amplified. Um, people are upset waiting to happen. So um, that's one of the reasons why the live space is still obviously for me um, the first prize because you can create a context and people can get who you are and what you're about and you're saying what you're saying into that context. For sure. And often online you can you miss that you can miss that context or sure. not be able to create it. Yeah, I think it's you're in your own little bubble, right? You're having your own little joke where maybe mm. people join the party late and get not so happy. 
Uh, yeah. And I mean, do you see that? Um, I mean, I, I look and I see these difficult moments we're going through, and I can't help but think in all difficult moments in life that the hardest things that you go through are the things you want to laugh about the most afterwards. Yes. Do you see that there's a growth in comedy in South Africa globally or or are you seeing, you know, more people getting into comedy or an affinity more towards comedy? Do you mean right now? Yeah. Well, that's hard to say because... Um, because there's no comedy scene, so to speak. I mean, there are people making funny videos, but you don't know who's becoming a stand-up right now. And in fact, um, for the kind of middle of the road or um, people who've not been doing it for very long, it's you know you can't get stage time, which is how you become a comedian. There's no training for it. You have to literally be on stage, and so. Um, that's almost impossible right now. I mean, there are people doing online shows and whatever, but you you can't you can't really gauge. That's also the issue with doing new material is that you don't know what works and you can't hear. The audience is giving you direct feedback in an, on, in a live show, so you actually you're literally getting feedback the entire time, and it informs, it tells you what's working and what's not working and what you need to work on. So it's very challenging. It's very challenging for established comics, let alone people who are just coming in right now. So I think there's a lot of people that will drop out of the game until we're back um, to normal in inverted commas. For sure. I mean, I often think about that response, like in business, you've got agile and lean, which is engaging with your customers, getting immediate response and building the product out. So... I think yes. that's what's probably changed in business. There's more of that than there was before. Before they used to build stuff and then when they'd finished it, check what was happening. Yeah. And do you see that, um, like, you got into comedy when? When did you get into comedy? I got into comedy just, actually just after 9-11. About three weeks later. So that was uh, October 2001. So almost 20 years now. Yeah. And do you remember your first gig? Sure. It was at this little uh, club, underground club in observatory called the Armchair Theatre. And um, I think comedy had been going there for maybe a year. I can't remember, but it was all very fresh. I'd actually, the first time I performed was the second time I'd watched stand-up comedy and I was on stage. What? And yeah, it was, it was this whole new scene and it, uh, there was, um, you know, kind of stand-up had only really had only really emerged in South Africa in the late nineties. So it was, very fresh. And how did your parents react to this new... Uh, <laughs> uh, with bemusement, I think. Um, I think they had some concerns. For sure. Um, having just graduated with a business science degree and then I went traveling with a theater company and I stopped doing that and they were, you know, 
I thought I was actually, I thought I was taking up acting and then, you know, that didn't work out. And then I was taking up stand-up comedy. So I think, I don't think they ever really expressed serious concern, but I think they were wondering, what the fuck is he doing? So, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an analogy amongst a lot of people that comics have to be fast thinking and really clever oaks. Is that true? Um, you know, I think there are some comedians who are incredibly quick thinkers and quick on their feet and brilliant improvisers. And I don't think of myself as one of those people, you know, and, and there are other people who, who's, and as a result, whose crowd work is great. They can get in there and I've kind of really had to work in that and work on probably just a conversation in my own head that I'm not good at that. Um, but I think you'll find that, that many comedians are thinkers. They're, they're observers and they're thinkers. Mm. Um, certainly a lot of the ones that I know. And they think quite deeply about things and people and the experience of being human. And, um, and, and that's, you know, why I enjoy company of many comics. What's interesting also is you mentioned this earlier about people, comics appearing to be fearless. And it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because there is a degree of that, but then there are times that you actually experience fear quite um, distinctly. And, and, and this is one of those times when you're doing something new and you, you're going on stage virtually Mm -hmm. And you know there's 5,000 people out there and you don't know whether what your internet speed is going to do and what's going to happen and is it going to work. And, and there's quite a visceral experience of fear. But I think what you've worked on for so many years is the ability to generate yourself in the face of the fear and to move beyond it. Is, is that an analogy for what everybody else is going through right now? Do you think businesses and... Business people, do you think that's a good analogy? I think, I think it's like, are you going to be paralyzed by the fear or, or act in the face of it? It's like when you started comedy, you just had to dive in and, and, and hold your breath and, and jump in there, right? Yeah. And what, what's also interesting is I did a character or characters for, I don't know, I think about the first year of my stand-up career and then eventually realized I had to drop the character and just be myself or it was never going to work and that actually was the way more terrifying it felt like I was starting from the beginning I didn't have this crutch and um, I think that's also interesting because in light of what we were discussing earlier there's this kind of almost demand for authenticity from performers you see it with with musicians and and comedians and people performing from their houses right now, that there's this this realness and and uh, there's no lights, cameras, action, makeup, whatever. And I think it's, I think it can be quite confronting. Mm. But people love it. Yeah, I mean, so about seven years ago, I, I bought this business from my father. I don't know if I told you, but um, no, he's one of those guys that traveled the world and set up businesses in Australia, New Zealand, England, he backpacked through the whole of Africa, really interesting guy, like crazy. 
um, left school when he was 15, uh, real hustler. And I admired him, and, and from probably the age of about five, I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but probably shut myself the whole time until around about then. And I think what happened was, is I really thought I could do a better job than him, but then when I took over the business, a lot of the staff actually left. They didn't have that confidence. And yes. I realized at that point that I couldn't be him and that I had to find myself. And it was a very similar thing. And... um Luckily, I was able to read. <laughs> Reading other people's stories helped me. And I suppose that's why I love doing things like this podcasts is because I believe in, in sharing authentic stories about what other people are doing, how, how they are, you know, just be yourself. Man. Yeah, I mean, it's earlier today, I happened to go onto Twitter and saw something some other comedian was doing somewhere. And immediately, it's so automatic. You just, the comparison just goes bing. And immediately my thoughts were, I should be doing more of that. I should be more relevant. I should be more woke, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm not good enough. And, and it's to be able to catch that and go, no, just close the internet and go back to what you were doing. Uh, because comparing yourself to whoever, your dad or another person doing what you're doing, is firstly the thief of joy and secondly um disempowering i think i think that was another thing yeah we looked at so similar to that right, there was a lot of other media companies doing some good stuff and i think that there was that scenario of looking at you know and maybe some people had were coming from those organizations who were very successful and joining our organization and there was that desire to look at what they were doing and copying almost like look are they doing this they're doing that and it's tough, yes. right? It's tough to say, be that disciplined. No, <laughs> I need to, we need to travel our own course. Um, yeah. And, and so these are all things that we all need to do now, right? I mean, we're, we're all in this. When did you know you'd cracked it? Uh, gee, I, I don't know, actually. Probably, I don't know, it must have taken about 10 years. Um, I remember actually traveling to London with some other South African comedians during the World Cup in 2010 uh, to do a show called Bafani Bafani at the, at the Albert Hall, at the Royal Albert Hall. And it was, the idea was the sort of top comedians in the country representing their country um, and the play on Bafana Bafana Bafani Bafani. And we had sort of five or 6,000 South Africans in the Royal Albert Hall. And I, I remember stopping because I was on autopilot five minutes into my set and just kind of looking up at, I don't know if you've been there, but the sort of tears that go higher and higher mm -hmm. these thousands of people. And it was like, oh, I'm actually here at the Royal Albert Hall. I remember looking at all the people who performed there backstage and it was like, so stuff like that kind of, uh, seeps into your being somehow and then over time i remember a friend of mine saying to me you know you can actually stop like panicking about where your next job is coming from because you've literally been pouring concrete for 10 years or 15 years but it's almost like um i actually had this this quote from bill burr up on my wall until quite recently yeah. which said something like 
quit suffering from the disease that it's all going to disappear at any moment. Something like something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think there's also that that analogy of that quick fix. That I don't know what it is immediate gratification, because I think that there's a lot of people who feel success is immediate, but it's a long road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually was also fortunate to have an incredible role model uh, in my dad because he, my dad was actually an accountant until he was 40 and then, and gave it up and um, took up pottery, which, which at that point in the 1960s was a pretty precarious existence financially. And he moved uh, onto a, a little farm and, uh, Actually, had to. He lived in a sort of one-room cottage, which he then moved out of, and and couldn't afford the rent on that. So he slept in his kiln for about six months. So he kind of he'd experienced all of that, and he lived this very simple, quite frugal um, existence up on the mountainside. Uh, it's now it's now a swanky wine farm called Eagle's Nest, but it was pretty rustic back then. <laughs> and and he he lived quite close to the. He built this sort of ramshackle pottery workshop on an old chicken run and and he lived in a converted stable kind of 500 meters away and he just threw pots his and his his kind of inspiration was a japanese potter called shoji hamada who would said things like people would say mr hamada how can you sell that bowl for a hundred dollars it only took you three minutes to to make and he'd say well that bowl took me 40 years and three minutes mm-hmm. to make. And, um, and somehow I, I got that from, 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 it kind of didn't make sense to me for a long time, but now that I've been working on this craft for 19 years, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting the hang of it. For sure. <laughs> and did your dad ever sell pots for a hundred dollars? Yeah, he did actually. Did he? So he's, is he like famous or? He became, yeah, he became quite a famous potter. Oh. So, and would you say you're more like your dad than your mum? I think, I think so. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to, to answer that question when you look at your parents and um, certainly have, they certainly have uh both shaped you to in different ways, but there was um, he was he he was just this very uh, grounded, powerful, quiet, peaceful force, and and gravitational had this gravitational pull. People would th- thousands of people came over the years to visit him up on the up in the mountain and just be with him, um, and. So I'm, um, yeah. I mean, ten years. I think he's been dead for ten years, but he I'm continues fine. to inspire me. And and I mean, obviously, you, you were semi-shaped from his experience of going to pottery. It's like something he loved. I mean, yes. I mean, your your children. Do you see them with the same sort of? I don't know. Is that is that crazy? Is it crazy to, you know, go to university, study for how many years, and then go in a completely different direction and build out a career 
traveling the world? Well, I think it does point to uh, this question of, you know, our model for uh, what's the ideal education you should, you know, get good enough grades to get into university and then study something. And for many people, it's maybe not the right idea, but they kind of do it because they think they should. Um, And for some people, it is the right thing. But I think it does. I think we are. I think we're also engaged in that inquiry right now. I mean, now that we're homeschooling our kids and seeing what they're actually learning, it's like, oh, why are you learning that? Like, what's the relevance of that? And then people like Elon Musk are designing their own curriculum for their kids and whatever. <laughs> but, uh, um, sorry, what was what was the question again? Yeah, do you see it in your kids? Do you see that the the the, the... The thing that, I don't know if it's a is it brave is it crazy is it nonconformist what is it do you see it in your kids? What the the comedy thing? No, uh, I'm gonna do what gives me my passion because obviously your oh. dad didn't have comedy; he had pottery. But you know, you found comedy. You found something that. Yeah. Well, certainly, I I saw. I mean, I watched this guy who's it was the thing that that got him up uh, and kept him alive. I mean, he, he he like had these series of like serious open heart operations and, and all sorts of things. And he kept just rebounding and it, and his, his focus, he was kind of single minded about getting back to the pottery. And I watched that like from a young age uh, and saw what, what it provided having this, this, uh, it's tricky to say, like, follow your passion because it's not always the best advice. But he certainly had <laughs> like purpose in what he was doing, and and his his commute through the forest every day, walking through a forest to get to work. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, it's hard to like not see the benefit in all of that. So, what would your? I mean, this is a great time for people because I think this is one of those times, right? Where you're either going to pivot to do something you like, or are you going to give up that day job and follow your passion? Because if you're going to do it, this is the time to do it, to study something or to test something. Mm. What would your advice be? Because it's not all plain sailing, right? Is like you said, no. you've got to get through the forest to get to the, the journey. You know, somebody I, I really have been interested in listening to at the moment is the author Elizabeth Gilbert. And in fact, you know, she wrote the book, um, the bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love. And she's written this great book about creativity called, uh, what's it called? Big Magic. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-mm. I'm going to read it. Um, it's really great for anyone that's kind of, you know, looking to explore their creativity in a deeper way. Um, but she talks about the period of time before, you know, becoming successful as a successful author. And she, has this distinction, I think it goes something like, you know, don't force creativity to pay the bills mm. uh, too, too, you know, too soon. And and I think, you know, I think back to the beginning of my stand-up, I think I, I didn't really make any money from stand-up for about five years or four or five years or something like, something like that. I, I had other things... I was uh, doing, and it was kind of a passion project for quite a long time. And I think that really helped a lot. Mm. You know, at the same time, 
it is, as you said, this is like the perfect moment to, to, I was actually just on a call with someone just now, like, what is it that you want to create for your life? This is the perfect time. You've got the space to think unless mm. you have three children, but, after <laughs> um, and, and, and not kind of limit yourself in any way, you know, come up with 10 ideas a day, every day and see what in the words of Marie Kondo sparks joy. Because in a way, that's what you've got to do every day. You've got to come up with ideas that bring humor, right? I mean, but my son's a surfer. So my oldest boy mm. is 20 and he's a surfer. And what a joy surfing is, but it doesn't necessarily pay the bills. So I've always been at odds, me and my wife. His passion and the real life, go and study and uh, get a real job. Um, I think it's... It's getting more difficult for parents to give advice. Yes. Certainly. To I think it's children. tricky for, um, for anyone to give advice to anyone. That, that's the thing, right? You've got to follow your own sort of path, what feels, what feels right. Yeah, but it certainly is. You know, and in that book, it's interesting because she, you know, she has a look at like, well, if you think that, proper job is mundane or boring or you feel limited or trapped in it like also have a look at your conversation about it and if there's no real way to transform your experience of being there then I guess yeah I remember my dad talking to me about yeah he used to get forced to play golf and he used to have to go audit companies and then Saturday it was compulsory to play golf and he hated golf. He would get out there as early as possible, like play on his own for nine holes, have somebody see him and then run up the mountain to get away. From it. And then actually I discovered recently that his GP said, you, you, you know, there's a rash that you keep getting. You're getting it from accountancy. <laughs> you should give that up. And fortunately, you know, he didn't have – kids mouths to feed and all of that and he could just pack it up and go live on a mountain so i spoke yesterday to brett archibald i don't know if you know brett you must know brett the guy that survived in the, the in the ocean no what happened he, yeah. he got thrown overboard in the in indonesia he fell off, off going through the mental he's halfway through and in, in that's right and for 28 hours he survived and and it's quite a yes. inspirational story but Actually, when I read the book, I realized there was a different story. And it was about a guy by the name of Doris or, or, or Joel Etherington, an Aussie guy. And um, I think about the age of 18 or 19, he built his first boat, uh, a concrete boat. And then he went and he was a surfer and he, and he actually beat his idol, Barton Lynch, in a surf contest at Bells Beach in the quarterfinals and just packed up his bags and left and went to Indo and lived there in a boat for a couple of years and came backwards and yes. forth. But he's a bit of a humanitarian. But it was actually, he, he's, he's, he's quite a um, forthright sort of guy and quite stubborn. And it seemed like he, he obviously was the captain that found Brett and, was, and had some, some disagreements with some of the crew and the other captains. Yes. But I think what a bloody life he led, um, traveling the world on a boat, um, and and essentially doing the things he loved, and I think I, I, I one of my goals after reading that get a boat and go to the med. Um, 
Yes. It's these awesome things when you're reading other people's stories about... And also, I think sometimes we work every day and, and one of the things I've realised with this lockdown is... is um, you know, he, I think he built two different boats, and what a wonderful thing to to use your your hands and mm. your ability to build things and to create things. Um, I sometimes think that in the corporate world, we sort of we've moved away from that quite a lot. We're d- dependent on technology, and we sort of giggle when people come on and you see how technology advanced they are. Yes, are you yeah, surfing at all? So- I have not been surfing <laughs> at all. I've not been sneaking down to dunes. Have you missed it? For day. I have not. Um, have I missed it? Yes, I have missed it. But I also, in another sense, I I feel like I was um, I was doing a lot of chasing sort of external activities to, to generate um, an internal state of mind. Like I think I need my surfing to feel calm and present. And um, and I think a lot of, that's why a lot of surfers are upset about the lockdown is because for them, that's the, the only access to that. So I've been doing a lot of, uh, well, kind of twice daily meditation slash breathing exercises to generate that. And I think as a result, I'm not craving the surfing to fix something. So I'm looking forward to it, certainly, mm. like being back in the water. Yeah. And and have you had any goals that have changed from this lockdown? Time to reflect? Yeah, I think I think one of the things is I was stuck inside of um, more. I want more. I need to grow this business. I need to earn more. I'm going to generate. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and obviously, no, <laughs> you can't. Um, but, but, also, but also something about appreciating what I have. It doesn't actually matter how how little it is. And I think that's, Kind of a lesson for my dad that I'd forgotten. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that also I've realized is um, some people in the family are missing a glass of wine every now and again. But what I'm also seeing is I've got a couple of friends who are bootlegging. Yes. And I almost get this impression that this COVID is going to create an awful amount of entrepreneurs, traders. I mean, when I go to Indonesia, one of the things I realize is that every family and every person in a family is buying or selling something, either petrol to you or something. And I think it's awoken a entrepreneurial spirit in South Africans. Yes. Are you, yeah, are, you, are, you selling, are you selling? I'm not selling. I'm not selling <laughs> anything other than jokes. <laughs> but if you're lucky, you can get some of them quite cheaply. For sure. On TikTok. Or for free. Um, but also, what's interesting is the, the sort of sense of community amongst affluent 
mainly white middle-class South Africans who don't know their neighbors' names, and I would put myself in that category, mm-hmm. is uh, it's like for the first time. Um, hello. Like, oh, uh, hello. Who are you? And how long have you lived here? <laughs> Uh, and walking and just being able to walk around and kids being able to walk. My son is 10. He's for the first time in his life. He goes, bye guys. He takes the keys. He meets his friend on a bike and, and off they go. I mean, it's how, I mean, I grew up on a farm, so, uh, you know, it was a different life, but there is this, this sense of community. And that's where I think kind of also supporting local businesses and entrepreneurs and, and there's, and hopefully this is, you know, something that continues to grow. I think it was, I, w- I was bored and watching Netflix and they had all these old philosophers and the one that came on was Confucius. I didn't know who he was. But um, China, when it was in its heyday many centuries ago, he basically said the, the strength or power of a family is directly related to the strength and power of a country. And I definitely yeah. feel like... Our family has got stronger, probably because they can't run away. Are you, are you seeing that? There's, a, there's that bonding in families and communities far more. It's almost like we're, um, we're getting through this together and it's, and it's going to bring us closer. Yes, I certainly am experiencing that in my, in my own family. I know families, you know, where the fault lines were already there and they've widened or worsened. <laughs> and the dad's, you know, living in a tent in the garden oh, dear. because of lockdown. Um, but I am hearing in my middle-class bubble, a lot of people saying that. For sure. And I mean, saying, you know, geez, I, I, I'm closer to this child or that child that I wasn't before. And what's also fun, interesting is with, you know, we have got small kids. So the pressure on my wife and I is, you know, it's kind of more intense and on our relationship because a lot of the time we're just dealing with managing kids and who's on Zoom calls and and she's seeing patients. So it's, it's kind of quite and having to shut down her business at the same time so there's been a lot of stress involved so it's really taken a lot of um, tools for us to have our relationship remain workable and to support each other and I think it takes kind of level of consciousness and kind of actively creating who you're being with each other to to make sure of that Yeah, no, I've been married twenty years, and so I know about that. But um, I think I think for the one thing I've learned in in being married so long and running a family business is that communication is sort of the the the, the one tool that we need to do more of talking and resolving these things. Um, yeah, what do you think of the future for Africa, South Africa? What What are your thoughts? Um, I am, uh, I am, I think I'm a glass half full person. That's sort of coming to realize. Um, so I am, I am positive. I think, 
Um, I think we'll look back. I, I like to do this. I like to think about what we'll say in five years' time when we look back um, on a personal level and a societal level. And I think I think we will have grown tremendously. I have a concern in terms of the level of inequality and how that will impact um, how we grow, not just not economically, because I think too much focus has been on that, but um, how much we care for each other. I think that's hopefully what we're going to see more of. For sure, that empathy. Yeah, how we how we interact. So, I mean, I know it's late. We obviously tried to get you for our Future of HR event this year. You blew us off. We, you know, you had other gigs. Hopefully, we I did. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh dear. Haley told oh, dear. me. Don't you worry. Haley told me. But that's cool because now we get a second chance. But we're going virtual, baby. So um, great. We want we want to talk to you about getting you involved again in future job, making it three in a row, and and trying to make no problem. I've got I basically got a tuxedo top which I wear with pajamas. <laughs> 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 um, Nick, it was great catching up. Um, keep those videos coming, and if you move to TikTok, I'll join you. Um, <laughs> um, okay. I, I think that comedy is the, the source of life, really, I do. And I think that um, one of the things I try and do is try and have fun. It's not always fun with whatever I'm doing. So, mm. you know, the joy you bring us and others is appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. It's been really great talking to you. Cheers. Hopefully you get some sleep before two I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Okay, Ralph. Thank you, man.